unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives, a battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Damasha. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We're recording on May 21st, just two days before counting day. Joining me to discuss the latest developments from India is Sunethra Choudhury, the brand new national political editor of the Hindustan Times. Sunethra is a veteran journalist who has had a distinguished career with the Indian Express and NDTV, among others. I'm very pleased to have her on the show for the very first time. Sunethra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Milan. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in. Um, I want to start <laughs> by reviewing this weekend's exit polls. Uh, on Sunday, we were inundated with 14 exit polls, 13 of which showed the NDA, or the National Democratic Alliance, winning an outright majority. Three of these polls projected the BJP-led NDA to do as well or even better than 2014. I think just one of the 14 polls showed the NDA falling short of a majority with around 242 seats. Now that we have a sense of what the exit polls say, um, tell us, you know, how do you how do you make sense uh, of this this flood of news that we received on Sunday? Well, you know what? I've been speaking to a lot of people in both sides and, um, you know, and whether it's the BJP or the Congress or some of the regional parties as well. I think one of the things that's interesting is that from both sides, they haven't you know, they haven't really taken things for granted. For example, um, this whole thing of having this NDA meeting today, um, you know, that's taking place where Amit Shah is hosting this do for, and, you know, people like Uddhav Thakre, the Shiv Sena, which is perhaps the most difficult ally that the NDA has. They've got them there. They've got Nitish Kumar. And this huge kind of, you know, uh, you know, you know, keeping everyone happy, everyone on the same page, that's happening on the NDA side. If you look at what's happening on, um, you know, on the other side as well, the opposition side as well, and, and it, a lot of the Congress leaders have spoken about it in the opposition side. It's not just Chandra Babu Naidu. We know for a fact that people like Sharad Pawar and others, uh, you know, they are reaching out to people, especially the three who are at the moment, they stand there. Uh, they haven't decided which way they're going to go. That is the BJD, the TRS, and also Jagan Reddy. And so these kind of negotiations are on. So yes, while the numbers are very, very unequivocal, for everybody else, it's still making sure uh, that they have all that in case they don't turn out as they are. And that's what the opposition really is hoping uh, that the numbers aren't aren't really going to be reflective of the reality. They're hoping it's a 2004-like situation where all the exit polls had written off. Um, they'd written off the opposition and the Congress, and they, in fact, did very, very well. So they're really hoping it's that kind of repeat as well. And that's why they're, they're speaking to everyone else. One of the interesting things that one Congress leader told me, I thought was quite reflective. He says, you know what these do? Uh, he, of course, you know, everyone sees conspiracies, especially all politicians. See, they, 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 you know, they love seeing conspiracies. And one of the things that he pointed out was that, you know, these things, he felt that this was a huge kind of uh, BJP conspiracy because he said what it does is it it throws off your party workers. So a lot of them who would be gearing up as poll observers or counting agents on the day of counting, they would lose their steam. And that's what they feel that the other side is hoping for. 
So these are interesting theories, but I think what's interesting to me is the fact that no one really has taken it for granted. So when you look at the state-level breakdown of these exit polls, you know, what states or what battlegrounds really jumped out to you? I mean, I'll just uh, put it out there for me. I thought uh, one of the most interesting things was uh, what the exit polls are showing in the Hindi belt, that uh, even if you leave UP aside, uh, the exit polls suggest very little attrition for the BJP in some of those core states where they virtually swept in 2014. And while the exit polls don't predict the same level of sweep, they still show quite a dominant performance by the BJP. What what do you make of the state-level exits? I agree with you. I'm fascinated about what it shows about Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh, but I'm also fascinated by the kind of gains that uh, it shows BJP making in places like Bengal and Odisha. Now, Rajasthan, of course, what's interesting is when you talk about Rajasthan or Madhya Pradesh, it actually reflects what people say on the ground as well. So while Uttar Pradesh is an entirely different story, because in Uttar Pradesh, everyone kind of expected, and that I think for the BJP as well, if you speak to BJP leaders, um, you know, just generally, and you know, if, if you get them to be frank with you, they say that, look, let's just, it all depends on what happens in Uttar Pradesh. So Uttar Pradesh, even the exit polls were divided, that the Gutbandan, uh, the Grand Alliance, is going to do very well, and they are going to eat into the, the BJP's tally from last time on. But I think what's fascinating about Rajasthan is, for me, as a reporter and as a journalist, is that it really shows that things have been completely different, that people are voting completely differently uh, than they did in the assembly election. So in assembly election, we saw a huge kind of anti-incumbency. And I mean, it's not just a, it's a, it's not just a, you know, it's not just a exit poll thing. What's, you know, this is the reality on the ground as well. I've been speaking to people there, uh, people from the Congress, and they admit huge factor about Modi is is dominating the Rajasthan election, which was not there. So while they they've really differentiated between their issues in December, which is when the assembly polls happen, and their kind of big issue right now. And it isn't even, and unlike the rest of the country, it isn't even about Balakot or airstrikes or that kind of a nationalism fervor. It's just, and nobody can understand it. They're all like, you know, it's a huge Modi wave that they're seeing in Rajasthan and to some extent in the urban areas in Madhya Pradesh as well. That's what the local leaders are saying. In fact, one one Congress leader was telling me, look, I could have fought against, and this is from Madhya Pradesh, he said, I could have fought against the, the my candidate who is standing, who's fighting from the BJP, but how can I fight against Modi? And to me, it seems like my opponent isn't this BJP candidate, but it's actually Narendra Modi. So for me, the exit polls actually reflected what exactly in these two states, it reflects exactly what people on the ground are saying. And that's fascinating. Now, you've seen your fair share of national elections over the years, but, you know, what in your view kind of distinguishes the 2019 campaign from elections in the past? I mean, could you pick out any specific themes or milestones that sort of struck you over the course of the past seven weeks? Well, there are a couple of things which I think really distinguish the 2019 elections. One, this same thing about, you know, it all being about Prime Minister Modi. I don't think that we've had uh, to such an extent and to such a degree 
an election where people are voting just about Narendra Modi. It's this time, you know, Atal Bihari Vajpayee in 2004 was a very popular prime minister. However, the vote wasn't about him. The vote was about is India shining or not? That's what the vote was about. This time, I think what really differentiates 2019 is, you know, Modi Sarkar, it's all about Narendra Modi. They're seeking votes and the opposition also attacking, is also attacking the government. It's all about Prime Minister Modi. So that is one huge differentiating factor about 2019. The other thing which, of course, it has now got enough mileage and it's been talked about as well, if you think about a first, is the fact that, you know, the kind of candidates that we've had um, and the fact that we've had for the first time a terror accused as a candidate. I'm, of course, talking about Sadhvi Pragya, who is the candidate, is the BJP's candidate in Madhya Pradesh, in Bhopal. What's fascinating about that is that it's constantly been a story. I mean, apart from the kind of outrage from the civil society, what's interesting is at the last minute, and I think that it was some kind of a, a signal that Prime Minister Modi was giving to potential allies again, where at the last minute after the voting was over and in his last press conference, well, it wasn't a press conference, but when he had, when he was present and uh, at the press conference and speaking to reporters. Uh, and before that, in an interview, he talked about the fact that I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive Sadhvi Pragya for making disparaging comments about uh, Mahatma Gandhi. So it's really interesting that you've had such a divisive figure who has also faced a certain amount of backlash and a pushback from her own party as well. And even though the whole idea of fielding her was something that came right from the top of the, you know, the, the leadership of the BJP. At the end of the campaign, they kind of distanced themselves from her so that in the end, if somebody like Nitish Kumar or anybody else who may, who they may be wooing as a potential ally in case they need to, although the exit poll numbers suggest they don't, then they can say that, look, Yes, she was problematic, that, but, you know, Narendra Modi has already said that, uh, you know, he's distanced himself from her. So it's interesting to have such a divisive kind of uh, candidate. We haven't really had that. And I think the last aspect of how 2019 elections are completely different, I think, would be the election commission's own kind of role that it's played in this election. I don't think ever before has the EC been questioned so much, whether it is about EVMs, whether it is about the fact that there's now an open fight going on about uh, one of the ECs, one of the poll members, poll body members, not agreeing with everybody else's decisions. So it really gives, puts a huge question mark. I mean, we had a former president, uh, Pranam Mukherjee, he's today issued a statement saying, I'm worried. I'm worried about these reports of EVMs coming out. He's issued a public statement, and it's very, very rare for Pranam Mukherjee to do that. So I think this, again, 2019 will also be known uh, to be an election where the EC uh, is, is not really above board. So I want to end this session like we do every week by asking you to share with our listeners, you know, one story coming out of India that you think hasn't been adequately reported to, uh, but that we need to pay attention to. What would be on your list? Well, I would say 
Uh, one story that I find quite fascinating is what's happening with Nitish Kumar. I think that we've all played down um, Nitish Kumar's statements, but I find it fascinating because Nitish Kumar, just uh, in the middle of the election season when he was out campaigning with Prime Minister Modi, and we know Nitish Kumar's background, he has, you know, he used to be on the other side. Um, he's changed teams several times. He was with uh, the RJD, the UPA, and now he's, of course, with the NDA. But he began the season, uh, the election campaign, when the prime minister was enthusiastically singing the nationalistic song, when they Mataram. At that time, he refused to sing long. He sat there very, very, and it was a, it was a clear signal he was right there. Today, again, he's uh, given a statement, uh, you know, talking about the fact that he finds this entire scheduling of elections uh, problematic, the fact that it was so long and there was, uh, there was such a gap between each phases, he finds it problematic. He perhaps, by, by doing that, and he of course doesn't blame the EC or call them biased, but by doing that, he perhaps becomes the only leader within the NDA who has who's raising questions about the elections process by the EC. So I think that's fascinating. I think that's something, uh, especially if there's a fractured verdict, uh, we should really re look out for. So my vote uh, this week is a story that appeared in your paper by Snigda Poonam and Lena Dankar, which is just an extraordinary uh, story. Uh, essentially, it boils down to a Haryana-based gang identified terminal cancer patients who came from poor backgrounds, got them to buy uh, insurance plans by hiding their condition, waited for them to die, and then put their dead bodies through fake accidents. Uh, and the gang then kept a part of this insurance money and distributed the rest amongst all the various people who colluded with them. So everyone from the family members of the cancer patients to the police officers, to the doctors, to the insurance agents, even to the public prosecutors. I mean, this is a story that has to be read to be believed. And, and kudo to HT and to Snigda and Lena for, for digging this story out. Um, who, who do you think had the best week in India this week, Sunitra? I think the BJP had the best week in India because of the exit polls, the fact that things have just been working out pretty well for them. I think the lucky run started when, you know, they had the UN uh, enlist Molana Masood Azar as a terrorist. And so it's really been worked out, things, the timing. And that's what they say about Narendra Modi, that he's incredibly lucky. And this is perhaps an instance of that, uh, you know, of him having a lucky run. So my vote would go to the voters of India. Uh, the Election Commission has provisionally said that the final voter turnout uh, in 2019 was 67.1%, which uh, does one better on the 2014 benchmark. While we're still waiting the, the final uh, tally, it seems from the data we have thus far that the turnout levels of men and women are roughly equal. And if that comes to pass, it'll be the first time uh, in independent Indian history that that's true. And so kudos to the voters uh, for coming out to the polls. While many democracies are seeing flagging turnout, including uh, the one I'm sitting in right now, the United States, this is quite an uh, accomplishment. Uh, so from the good to the bad, who do you think had the worst week in India? I think Congress candidates in Uttar Pradesh are having a really bad week. Things haven't been good for them. 
for a long time now. They thought Priyanka Gandhi was going to change their fortunes by um, by campaigning for them. But they're not looking, even before the exit. The exit polls have completely written them off. Uh, many are, in fact, saying that Rahul Gandhi's Amethi seat is in trouble as well. But I think they've, they've been very clear that uh, they don't have uh, any chance of winning at all. And I think that's just, uh, that's just really, really depressed most of them because they were hoping for a bit of a revival. They were hoping that they were going to cut into the votes of the BJP, but it doesn't seem that it has worked at all. If if things turn out to be good, it's going to be good for the Mahagathbandhan, but not for the Congress party. And after all, you've had people like Yogendra Yadav said that the Congress needs to die. So my vote for the worst week is the father of the nation, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, this year, we're celebrating the 150th anniversary of his birth. Uh, his name, as you mentioned before, has been dragged through the mud in recent days. You know, the controversy began when the BJP's candidate for Bhopal, Pragya Singh Thakur, came out with praise for Gandhi's assassin, uh, Nathuram Godse. Although the BJP later condemned her statement, she refused to apologize, and many BJP supporters, uh, especially on social media, loudly echoed her praise for Godse. Um, and so, although he's not here to defend himself, um, I think uh, Gandhi's name and legacy um, were, were certainly uh, attacked this week. Sunetra, thanks so much for joining us. I know this is an extremely busy time for you. We look forward to your reporting on Election Day and helping all of us understand what actually happened over these past seven weeks. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. So after a quick break, I'll be back to talk with Gilles Vernier of Ashoka University on what data has taught us about the 2019 campaign. My guest on the podcast today is Gilles Vernier. Gilles is an assistant professor of political science at Ashoka University and co-director of the Thurvedi Center for Political Data. Under Gilles' leadership, the Thurvedi Center has quickly become the go-to source on Indian election data and analysis. If you have not been following the work Gilles and his colleagues have been doing on the 2019 race, then you've been missing out on some of the most informative, empirical, and timely analysis that's out there it's great to have him in the Grand Thamasha studio. Gilles, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So before we get started uh, to talk about the campaign itself, tell our listeners a little bit about what the Trivedi Center is and describe you know, some of the resources you've set up for the public to use. Yeah, so the Trivedi Center was started about three years ago with the aim of uh, building public data sets on Indian elections. People who have worked on uh, Indian elections or Indian politics at large, uh, you, me, and so many of our colleagues, have always you know, struggled to uh, put even the most basic data together. And when I joined Ashoka, I basically had the opportunity of uh, building uh, a research facility that would create those uh, data sets and you know, disseminate them through uh, an open data platform. So we have data on election results, historical data back to uh, nearly independence. Uh, we collect data also on candidates running for elections. Uh, so far, you needed to wait a lot or limited means meant that you could only work on winners. But now we have data on thousands and thousands of candidates, which are collected through archival work, uh, interviews, field work, uh, data mining, uh, using a multiplicity of sources and combining computer science, political science together to um, create those uh, public goods. 
Uh, one of our mission also is to encourage data journalism. And so we've been working with a number of publications, with the Hindustan Times, with the Times, uh, with uh, the Indian Express, um, with Scroll, and, and a number of other uh, media, and NDTV also more recently, to encourage them to use more data and evidence in their coverage of uh, elections. And, and it's been really heartening to see that we've been part of a movement where uh, so much more evidence and data as is being made available in real time. Uh, if you remember, you know, the 2014 elections, I mean, we had to wait, you know, weeks and to actually see the first, you know, data-driven pieces because, you know, we would all wait for the election commission to put, you know, stuff online and uh, and we had, you know, limited means, but now we can work in uh, absolutely real time. So one of the issues you've been tracking from day one of this election is the status of women candidates. Now, we're ending the near of the election cycle. We have one more phase to go on May 19th, which will be phase seven, of course, counting days on May 23rd. What do the numbers look like thus far in terms of women candidates? Do we see a uh, significant shift, say, from 2014? So there's been a very, very mild progression, uh, and it's a mild way of putting it. So out of 8,048 candidates, 713 are women. It's uh, basically a total of 8.8%. Uh, it's an 8. It's a 1.2% compared to uh, 2014. And, and it's been a long-term trend that um, women participation in the election has risen in India, but from an extremely low level and with an extremely uh, slow growth rate. Uh, to put things in perspective, uh, when you look at women representation in national parliaments, and if you look at uh, uh, World Bank data on that, India ranks 152nd. Uh, a few months later, it was 149. It has slipped uh, three ranks uh, since. If you look at India's neighbor, uh, Pakistan is 91st, Bangladesh is 90th, uh, Nepal is 54th, uh, Afghanistan is in the same ballpark. Only Sri Lanka actually does worse with only 5% of uh, women in this parliament. That figure is 11% in uh, India. There was a lot of hope that parties would give more tickets for women for a number of important reasons, which is that uh, women voters have really risen in India over the past few years. Uh, traditionally, there has been a gap of participation in elections between 20-15%, which was resolving very slowly. But after 2009, Women participation has shot up to the point that where it is indifferentiated with uh, male participation. So in other words, just to, to clarify for our listeners, it's quite possible in 2019 that male and female turnout will have reached parity. So right now, the data we have for uh, the six first phases uh, is the gap is 0.3%, which is really insignificant. Uh, in the last round of state elections, women have outvoted men in 17 states, which is a majority of states. Now, when I say outvoting, I don't mean that more women vote than men because you still have, you know, skewed sex ratio and the, there's still gaps in registration. Uh, Pranay Roy has written uh, about that and Shamika Ravi, Ravi has written also about that, about, you know, missing women in the electorate. But things have uh, improved uh, a lot. And political parties have... Uh, integrated that fact. Uh, they've um, 
included far more, you know, uh, clauses uh, concerning women, women's interests in their manifesto. They address themselves to women much more directly than they were before. They no longer consider women as extension of, you know, their households in terms of electoral behavior. We have data that shows that women vote much more autonomously uh, than uh, they probably used to in 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 the past. Uh, India has this also very con uh, contrasted uh, figure in terms of women participation in public life because at the local level, thanks to quotas, you have 46% of women in elected uh, local bodies. Uh, you have a number of very powerful women politicians uh, currently and historically uh, leading parties, uh, former prime minister, party presidents, chief ministers, and so forth. But it's this in-between, international and particularly even more at the state uh, parliaments where women are missing. Let me ask you about two particular parties which have gotten a lot of attention. So one is the BJD, the ruling party in the state of Odisha, and the second is the Trinamool Congress, the ruling party in the state of West Bengal. They had committed before the elections to give one third of tickets to women. Have they implemented this decision? And do you think it's putting pressure on other parties, maybe not this election, but in subsequent elections to follow suit? Uh, yes, they have. And uh, and to be fair, there's another party. Uh, it's a, it's a, a smaller, recent young party in Tamil Nadu called NTK, who has distributed 50% wow. of its tickets to uh, women. And uh, but the BJD, the Biju Jantadal in Orissa, and the Trinamool Congress uh, have indeed uh, implemented their promise. Uh, um, a third of the candidates for the BJD and 41% uh, for the Trinamool. Um, these are two parties with leaders who actually have, you know, progressive ideas on uh, and who are, are serious about, you know, gender equity. These are uh, also two uh, party, political leaders who seek to uh, who the women vote uh, by, you know, using that instrument, by providing representation. In a way, women voters are treated the way, you know, caste voters are treated on the base of caste or community um, and so forth. Sadly, uh, they haven't been followed by other parties. The Congress parties, the BJP, are merely giving 12% of their tickets to women. Uh, it's actually less for uh, uh, the Congress, uh, slightly more for the BJP. Uh, but you don't see that having ripple effects uh, so far. Every party so far has committed to implement the uh, Women Reservation Bill, which would introduce a one-third quota in, in parliaments. Uh, but whether they will actually commit to that after the election remains to be remains to be. And seen. usually the fight then breaks down over will there be within the one-third quota for women subcast quotas for Dalits, OBCs, and, uh, and, and others. I want to switch gears a little bit by talking about a recent piece that you did for the Hindustan Times, where you note that only 60% of incumbent MPs are rerunning this election, which, you know, if you're sitting here in the United States, is kind of a shocking figure, right? Because we know that there's such a great incumbency advantage, and you often see incumbents rerunning. Um, this is the lowest share you point out in at least the last five election cycles. Why are we seeing so few incumbents run this time? There's a combination of factors. First, it's a common phenomenon that parties actually check out a large part of their uh, incumbents uh, before an election. Uh, they usually claim to do that on the basis of performance, but actually it's usually based on uh, you know political electoral calculations. Meaning that if you dump a large set of your incumbents, you can beat anti-incumbency, right? Yeah. Is that the idea? Exactly. The idea is to anticipate 
anti-incumbency by presenting fresh faces to uh, voters. There is a tendency from voters to turn against whoever they have you know, voted for in the previous election. If you look at the recent election in Madhya Pradesh, for example, uh, most of the uh, incumbent BJP uh, candidates lost, uh, and it was interpreted as, you know, Farmers' anger, rural distress, uh, strong anti-incumbency against the state government, scandals, but most of the Congress incumbents also lost, right? right? And so parties try to anticipate that by uh, putting up fresh faces. But then there's a multiplicity of other reasons that also intervene. Uh, alliances, seat sharing, you have to you know, let some of your error seat go. Uh, intra-party factionalism. Uh, the competition for access to position of power is fiercer than the electoral competition uh, itself. The rising cost of entry to politics, something you have extensively written about, Milan, uh, means also that a lot of candidates just cannot keep up. I have interviews with people who have been five times MPs or five times MLAs and say, I'm not going to sell my house to remain a politician, I cannot keep up with the mounting costs. And, and so this uh, spiraling cost of entry into politics also kicks out. But I have a more recent piece, which is, which is yet to be published, where uh, I see that those who are chucked out tend to be first-time MPs. And those who get to rerun tend to be people who've already served two, three times. And so one effect of this uh, high turnover is it actually reinforces a phenomenon of concentration of power within parties. Because you could interpret it in two broad ways. One, you could say it's great to have elite renewal. Uh, think about, you know, people in modern democracies who have, you know, inflicted, you know, the same old political elites for, for so long. I mean, look at all those, you know, old faces, you know, in parliaments and Congress and Senates across the world. So renewal is good and, and good for democracy. On the other hand, uh, one has to see that it reinforces uh, concentration of power by creating or reinforcing uh, the creation of a very small, what I call a stable political class. If you look at the number in any assembly in India, across states and in the parliament, who have served more than two consecutive terms. These are, for me, the real professional politicians, not the fly-by-night politicians. Uh, it boils down to 100 individuals across states. In Uttar Pradesh, uh, a state of 200 million people, you find a handful of people who actually last in politics. Now, one thing you point out in your piece is that, you know, one unintended consequence of weeding out all of these incumbents, even if they end up coming back later, is that you could lose out on experience, right? So is this one of the downsides of parties uh, dropping so many incumbents? Is that the kind of institutional knowledge you have about, say, how parliament works, you know, the, the things that MPs have to do to survive and deal with constituents and the administration and so on? Does that some of that go by the wayside? Yeah. The, I mean, there are two aspects to that question. One is that you have to deal after every election with a, an assembly of newcomers. So they have to learn the job. And it takes time to learn how to become a parliamentarian, learning the ropes. Uh, these are not people trained, you know, to, you know, legislative affairs or legislative work. Um, and the uh, second aspect is that uh, it, it, it creates a, a regime of, you know, disciplining of parliamentarians who uh, would completely refrain from raising a contradictory voice within their own party for fear of not being given a, a, a ticket. 
So it's the old Jack Welch rule that you weed out 10% of your least productive employees to keep the other 90% in check. But Indian political parties, huh, let's raise the bar to 50% or 60 or, or 40% right now. So Jack Welch on steroids. Jack Welch on steroids, exactly. I have to ask you about Uttar Pradesh, Gito, because it's a state that you know so well. You've extensively researched backward politics, particularly in UP and the Samajwadi Party. Uh, what feedback are you getting and is your team getting from the field in terms of how the SP and the BSP, you know, are working together in this grand alliance? And we have to remind uh, listeners that these are two parties that were literally at each other's throats for decades who have decided to temporarily perhaps set aside their differences to challenge the BJP and prevent the BJP from coming back to power. What's the sense that you're getting from the field in terms of how this is working? See, the problem in answering that question is that there's not one feedback. There are, you know, 20 different feedbacks. And presumably it varies by region as well. And it varies by locality. You could literally, and we've been joking with friends who are underground, that you could literally send two reporters in one village and they will write two radically opposed stories at the end of the day about, you know, who's winning. Um, So it's been very hard to read. Um, This is the first election in UP in a very long time that is actually a bipolar election. Uh, where you have two main contenders. Uh, before, it was basically, you know, a three, four main parties, uh, a three, four corner fight. So that changes uh, things, certainly. The alliance on paper is actually quite formidable because these are two parties that have a strong following among important dominant groups or groups that have numerical importance, which obviously matters a lot. And uh, but uh, and and the combination of those vote bases, Muslims and Yadavs and Jatav Dalits, uh, puts them at you know similar level than you know previous uh, BJP vote shares. Uh, now there's a multiplicity of factor that intervene, which could actually uh, put a lot of you know um, uh, grains of sand you know in that machinery. The fact that the Congress is not running with that alliance, uh, they're going to undercut, uh, they're going to undermine them into a large number of seats. I estimate that the Congress can have a nuisance effect in 19 seats out of out of, out of 80, 10 seats against the BJP. Um, small factions, dissident factions from the Samajwadi Party is fielding, uh, uh, led by Shiv Pal Singh, uh, is fielding a lot of local MLAs, ex-MPs, who could dent also into the alliance. Um, the fact that the uh, project of this alliance is to combine three specific groups, it incurs the risk of alienating the 60% of the population who does not belong to any of those three groups. And um, right now, a, a, a great achievement that they have you know, managed to do is to put their organizations together at the local level. There was a lot of doubt that they would actually do that, but we've seen them mobilizing, holding local events jointly. But the purpose of that mobilization is to make sure that the basis of those parties vote in the proper way uh, on election day. Uh, But it's not carrying out a strong message outside. And UP, like many other states, has a lot of voters who are non-aligned. We call them floating voters. We would call them undecided uh, voters um, elsewhere. And it's not certain that the alliance will be very attractive for those. While on the other side, the BJP also has its own caste calculations, but they have the Modi factor on top of that. And everyone who's been traveling to UP uh, recently can see how intact 
the largely intact, the reputation or the image, rather, of uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, remains, despite the fact that people are fully aware of the limitations and the failures of his government. Let me ask you quickly about Muslims, because uh, there have been several commentators who said they believe the Muslims will vote strategically in this election against the BJP and support the alliance, and that they are not necessarily worried that the Congress or other parties will cut into that vote. But historically, at least research has shown that uh, Muslims have not always coordinated on their vote in, in Uttar Pradesh in terms of deciding who to vote for. Uh, where do you come down on this issue? I mean, do you think that we will see a considerable amount of quote-unquote block voting, or do things tend to be more fragmented? Yeah, I think, f first of all, I mean, it, it's it, it's a fiction that we need to dispel that Muslims in India vote en bloc, even within the state of uh, Uttar Pradesh. Uh, it's in a massively heterogeneous set of communities who have been voting in, 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 a, in a fragmented order uh, for a very long time. Now, in a way, the good news is that uh, they used to split their votes between SP and BSP candidates. Now that these two parties are together, that considerably reduces the risk of split voting. Um, I have a paper with Oliver Heath and Sanjay Kumar on this precise issue where we see that Muslims tend to vote more for co-religious candidates than any other group for co-ethnic candidates, uh, but with the strong caveat that they would do so when they feel that that candidate has a chance of winning. So, so they tend to vote more for fellow Muslims if they believe they're going to win. Exactly. So it's not purely identity, but there's a lot of strategic voting involved. Uh, now, with the alliance, there's a really strong chance that they would massively vote for it, and, and that's going to play certainly in favor of the alliance. And it's not clear that the Congress, who has fielded eight or nine Muslim candidates in UP, will be able to uh, dent uh, significantly uh, into that. Now, you don't have Muslims everywhere. They tend to be concentrated into certain areas, in Western UP, Drohilkand, but very few in the East and very few in, in Bundelkhand, for example, and, 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 and it varies across Central UP. So they have demographic, therefore political influence, but only in uh, certain sub-regions of the state. So let me ask you by asking you a question about May 23rd, which is counting day, uh, a day that, you know, seems so far away when we started this podcast, but is now around the corner. Uh, let's leave UP aside. Everyone knows that's going to be a big battleground state. What states are you going to be watching above all others to kind of get a handle on the trends uh, uh, on which way this election is going to go? What are some of those states which you think are going to be symbolic in terms of which way the wind is blowing? Um, I would look at symbolic states, but I would also look at other states for also pragmatic reasons. Because, I mean, the big questions after 23rd is what coalition are we going to have? This is the most likely scenario. There's going to be a large coalition. Uh, so I would, of course, we expect the BJP to decline uh, significantly, you know, across uh, the Hindi belt. So the question is, where can they make gains to compensate for those losses? The crucial state will be West Bengal. Uh, this is a 40-plus uh, seat uh, state, you know, in, in the SM, in, in the Lok Sabha. And uh, the BJP has led a very aggressive campaign, ground campaign, has been working on it for years and, and is making a lot of progress. Whether that can convert into seats remains to be seen, but the BJP has succeeded in becoming the number two party there, completely displacing the Congress and the communists who have been totally invisible during this campaign. Another state I would look at closely is Tamil Nadu, because uh, there is a strong possibility that... Uh, 
the AADMK, who swept that state in 2014, might bite the dust. Uh, they are in complete organizational disarray. Their leader passed away. They haven't managed the succession. There's a lot of infecting. And if the DMK plus Congress should sweep that state, it's almost 35 to 40 seats that are no longer available for a BJP-led uh, coalition at the uh, center. I would look also at... Um, three states uh, in, in the south and east, uh, Orissa, which is another area where the BJP is hoping to make uh, inroads, and Telangana and Andhra Pradesh, where uh, the lo local regional parties are expected to sweep. Uh, they have already sort of announced that we're going to pull our seats together and negotiate en bloc, which you know would give them considerable leverage. Uh, and if the Trinamool decides to join that, I mean, they could decide uh, or be decisive to the determination of the actual outcome of the um, election. This has not been a national election. Uh, there's one party in power that has led uh, a national campaign with a national leader, but the regional factors, uh, the importance of state politics has uh, surfaced more than ever uh, and it's the complexity of, you know, additions and numbers that uh, ultimately is going to look at. But to answer your question, West Bengal is crucial. Uh, Tamil Nadu will be very important and literally every other state. The more fragmented, the more uncertain, uh, even small states and small parties can hope to have to play a pivotal role. Uh, which is a polite form of, you know, blackmail or... <laughs> right. I mean, let's not forget that parties <laughs> with even no MPs, but a, but a marginal vote share, <laughs> you know, can, 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 can help uh, tip the balance in particular states, particular constituencies. What's important is to see that there is, uh, that the opposition is in a dispersed order, which basically uh, creates a completely open, uh, open-ended scenario uh, after the 23rd. So, Gilles, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, it's been great to follow your work during this entire campaign. I know that you uh, and others will be writing regularly for the Indian Express, for the Hindu Sun Times, for a variety of other outlets after the elections. Correct. And we'll look forward to reading that. And for those uh, enterprising individuals who want to access data, on the 2019 election. Uh, I, I think Gio can't promise that the data will be ready uh, for public consumption on the 24th, but it will be there shortly after for people to start uh, playing around with. As soon as we can. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Grant the Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jamie Hinson and Rachel Osnos. Tim Martin's our audio engineer, and Lauren Duax, our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.